Welcome to Affect Autism, where we use the developmental individual differences relationship-based model to empower parents in how to bring out your child's desired and highest potential using play therapy. This week, we have a new special guest with us, Virginia Spielman, and she has quite a list of credentials here. (laughs) Virginia is a trained occupational therapist who has currently moved to the United States. She is working on her registration in Colorado. She's also a DIR expert trainer, uh, expert training leader, and a clinical consultant to the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning, ICDL, the home of DIR Floor Time. And uh, prior, she grew up and lived in Hong Kong and was the founder and former clinical director of SPOT, Speech, Physical, and Occupational Therapy which was an interdisciplinary children's therapy center. And um, she also has run numerous conferences and trainings around the world. And uh, she's also currently completing her PhD in infant and early childhood development with an emphasis on mental health with Fielding Graduate University, which we have covered um, in other parts of the blog. So if you tune in to uh, this podcast and want to see some of the links to everything that I'm mentioning, you can go to affectautism.com and everything will be there right in front of you. So welcome, Virginia. Thank you. It's really nice to be here. It's great to have you. I've heard about you for, for a number of years and to finally get to meet you and um, have this podcast is great. So um We're going to talk today about sensory lifestyle. And uh, this is very important because with children who have autism or developmental challenges, uh, including my own son, a lot of our kids have sensory issues. And I would say that's probably the overwhelming majority of our kids. And then there are also kids who aren't autistic who also have sensory processing disorder or other sensory challenges that really, really prevent them from being able to take part in a shared world, uh, to be able to be settled at school, and to be able to just participate in a lot of general activities. So um, what we tend to do is we tend to visit an occupational therapist, and preferably we like to go to an occupational therapist who has training in sensory integration, and they tend to give you these activities that help your child's sensory system to be calm enough in order to stay regulated, which of course is our first developmental capacity in the DIR model, being able to share attention and be regulated with others. So um, where should we start, Virginia? (laughs) Well, I think so much of what you've said is, is, is new to many people the fact that we have sensory systems that are you know not part of our conscious thought processes when we're able to develop typically Um, and the fact that when they're not working well they can be so disruptive there's so much potential to disrupt or support the attachment and development process from these sensory systems these mysterious um, nine uh, systems. We, we learn about five senses of, at school, of course. You know, we learn about um, taste, smell, vision, um, sound, and touch. And we forget that there are other sensory systems or we're not told. So there's our, 
there's our sense of position where we are in in um where our body parts are in relation to each other and that we call that the proprioceptive system and that tells us how much force is being used or we need to use where our feet are on the ground or all of those things and there's also our little spirit level in our just here in our inner ears the vestibular system with the liquid that moves around and tells us where our head is in relation to gravity also is like the traffic control tower for the rest of the sensory systems and um, really helps us to be like you said regulated calm enough alert enough and available for all of the opportunities around us and then we have all our internal senses the sense of our stomach gurgling hunger thirst um, all the visceral senses that we call interoception which also we can be over responsive to we can be under responsive to we can you know when we're when when our little infants are getting used to those sensations, we all remember the wide-eyed look as they hiccup or when they need to burp and this sense of alarm, something's happening inside me and the parent through the relationship says, oh, it's okay, it's just a hiccup and helps you learn and code how, how much should I prioritize this sensation and eventually the little infant is able to habituate to those interoceptive um, experiences. But our children who find those experiences more alarming or are not aware of those experiences and therefore you know, can't manage hunger and toilet training and those sorts of things, or our children who can't access the relationship piece, interoception remains a problem rather than something that they integrate and are able to remain organized through. So I think the first thing in this conversation that you so brilliantly set up is just sensory systems have huge potential. They've got lots of promise to help us be organized, but when they're disrupted or disorganized or there's poor integration, they also have potential for peril and to be very, very problematic in some of the most important areas of development. And yet they get, they get, um, they don't get enough of the conversation. Um, you know, so what, was there a ninth system you're going to talk about? The five no, proprioceptive, no. vestibular, interoception? Yeah, so we've got, so, so some people talk about, some people break down proprioception, but probably we won't go into that, we won't go into that in, the, in, in as much detail. It's, it's, it's getting into the weeds a bit, but some people, proprioception can mean to some people your sense of position and it can, you, you can use visual proprioception and um, it can be talked about as kinesthetic sense as well. The, the sense of where your body is in relation to the, the body parts is what we'll refer to today as proprioception, which is in the muscle spindles, the muscle fibers and the deeper layers of the skin. This is where I am in space. And it's really uh, important sensory system to be well integrated. You can break down the movement sensors even more. And maybe that's a, that's a conversation that we'll have at another time because obviously I find it fascinating. Um, but there is some different terminology that floats around and sometimes that, that can be confusing for us when we're trying to decipher what's going on with our children. Right. Yes. Um, and, and anyone who's been following the blog at Affect Autism knows about the sensory processing profile that we talk about all the time. It's the I and the DIR model for individual differences. 
every child and every person has a unique individual profile. For example, I don't like wearing picky wool sweaters. That is a, um, uh, uh, um, what do you call <laughs> An individual idiosyncrasy about my, um, is it a tact, that would be a tactile? Probably tactile, My yeah, tactile yeah. system, so my sense of touch. I don't like a lot of, I don't like a lot of touchy-feely when people come and hug me all the time that I don't know. <laughs> That's just um, one silly example. But our children that have the challenges. So let's talk about my little guy when he was born. The first month was a breeze. My pregnancy was a breeze. And then all of a sudden, whoa, what's going on? He screamed and shrieked his head off unless, and this was the thing, he could always, always be soothed. So I knew it wasn't colic. I just had to pick him up, move him around like crazy. So swing him side to side to side, up and down, bounce, bounce, bounce. I could sit him in one of those swings, moving around. He loved the jolly jumper. If we tried to go in a car seat or a stroller, whoa, absolutely none of it. He would shriek and start to shake and shiver and then throw up, like literally panic. So I literally wore him in a you know baby carrier 24 seven and you know I that he was born the summer Michael Jackson died there were so many nights at 3 a.m. I was just had on you know Michael Jackson songs swaying back and forth till I sit down in the nursing chair and finally he's asleep and then ah, the second I sit down and up again up and up and up and and breastfeeding every two hours until he was uh, like almost two and a half years old, and then he, he was hospitalized. So he just had that constant need for um, movement and, and input. And let's move on to uh, toddlerhood, where he, he constantly, and to this day, needs to move, cannot sit still for one second, always has to be doing something. When he started walking, no matter where we were, he'd stick his finger in whatever little hole he'd see in the wall. Anytime there was a little screw, he had to go touch it and feel it. Anytime there were little specks on the carpet, he had to go look at them and pick them up. So all of the different things that he would notice and, and want to touch and squeeze his body into tight places between the dresser and the wall and bump into people as we'd be walking um, in the busy Toronto subway corridor, he'd always want to bump into people and he would run at full speed at home and crash into me or my husband to feel that sense against mm -hmm. his body. And so he's a sensation seeker, but um, even like most profiles, certain things he has an aversion to. So instead of seeking, he's aversive to a lot of touch and he was aversive to getting his hands messed up in certain things. Although my husband says that's because of me being a tidy, neat freak and wiping <laughs> his hands while he was eating all the time. But this is just um, um, just to introduce the concept to our listeners about how every child has different, um, different whether they seek or they're overwhelmed by hearing, like the kids that need to wear headphones or their vision. If it's visually distracting, then, you know, forget about trying to get your child to pay attention or listen if they're constantly seeing everything around them. And then um, we talked a little bit about the sense of touch. We talked about proprioception, seeking that body stimulus, mm -hmm. the sense of movement, vestibular, taste. I know children at um, uh, 
a friend of my son's who literally throws up at the smell of apples and has wow. a hard time with his diet because so many mm -hmm. things literally make him physically ill. So um, before we get into what we do about it, do you want to add anything about the individual profile? Well, I think, I think what you're saying really nicely is that um, every child has a different sensory profile or a, yeah, a different, um, I, think of, I think of a soundboard you know, when, when, you're, when, you're, when you're at a concert or that someone's laying down a musical track, there are all these different settings. And every child's settings are different. And, and uh, what's really important to remember is that across these sensory systems, whether you need to go into the weeds of movement with your child um, or, or not, you know, each system needs warrants a further look. So you can identify there's something going on with the visual system here and really what you want in Utopia is an expert then on the visual system to really help you unpack that because there are so many facets to it. It generally isn't just that this child is over responsive to visual or under responsive to visual. It could be that the different aspects of the construct of, of visual processing need to be need to be looked at and they all have their own individual settings and and so uh, very often as we're learning about sensory it's it it's tempting to sort of perhaps identify a system and leave it at that but in an ideal world I think we would have professionals who work together talk to each other empower the parents to understand well the visual system we can do a depth dive into that. In the auditory system, we're talking about hardware and software. We want to know what, what iOS the software is operating on. We want to see if some, so, you know, what areas need looking at. And everything's dimensional. There are facets to each of these systems. We're going so yeah. to scare our listeners away with all of this <laughs> stuff. But just to jump in for a second about visual, just to give a quick example, we brought our son to a op, uh, developmental optometrist who checked his depth perception, per, mm -hmm. uh, perception. So some kids literally see in two dimensions, not three dimensions yet. Um, she checked that. That was fine. She checked his... Um, vision he has you know 2020 vision or whatever but the pr it's the processing of it so what she found is that his central vision and peripheral visions are not yet integrated so right. he's essentially seeing everything and that's why mm -hmm. when we watch model trains at a train show he'll go right up to the model train like literally three millimeters away and watch mm -hmm. it out of the side of his eye to get that focus and that see the trains go by so that's an example of the visual system Right. And I think rather than I don't want to intimidate people, but I'd love to empower parents and self-advocates to really um, be comfortable saying, you know, what, we want more detail here and we want to we want to look at all of these areas because they have so much potential to support or hinder the process of of enjoying social interaction of, of this person really figuring out and becoming their authentic self. It can be interrupted or supported by each one of these systems, and 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 there are so many uh, potential different settings that that each individual has. So, template um, therapies and protocols proceed with caution, and just ask questions and seek professionals and be um, be empowered to do that because you know that 
the human brain, the human body are incredibly complex. And I just like to say something about that because, you know, our son had um, treatment at one of the top facilities in the world um, after his brain inflammation. And, um, you know, professionals are all doing their best and, mm -hmm. and kudos to them. They all have the greatest of intentions. But the occupational therapy he received was, you know, sit down, put these shapes in this shape sorter. Um, see if you can draw a line and and it just the more that I know now like um, five years later is to like you said let's ask more questions let's not do the template therapy because every child is so different and it's the sensory system that needs to drive your inquiry and, and you need to know what's going on like you said there's little settings that you need to set across each of these systems mm -hmm. and so um, really figuring out who who is the professional that you're going to do they know what they're talking about um do they understand all these systems in depth and it, and certainly there's going to be auditory uh specialists and visual specialists and different specialists that you can go to and it, it can be an overwhelming process but it's not something that has to be done all at once mm -hmm. and over mm -hmm. time a few visits here and there and listening to some of these podcasts that that i do about it and other people um, you start to get a feel for where your child's difficulties are and how you can help help support them. And, um, and let's jump in now to what we do in terms of intervention or support for a child like mine who really needs help to get through the day. Otherwise, he's just dysregulated the whole day and, and it can be very frustrating and uncomfortable for him. So putting in place uh, what we call a sensory diet where he gets um, bits of different activities to do throughout the day to help support his regulation. So um, can you tell us about what a sensory diet is? Well, I think when you talk about a sensory diet, you're talking about um, 24 hours a day. Um, some people use the terminology sensory diet to really refer to sensory breaks during the day. And um, that especially is prevalent in schools. Um, the reason I'm in Colorado is because I'm fortunate enough to be to be working with Dr. Lucy Miller. I'm, I'm essentially apprenticing under her at the moment. I'm the associate director of the STAR Institute in Colorado for sensory processing. And um, Dr. Miller talks about a sensory lifestyle which I think is really what you're doing for your son. Sensory diet sometimes refers to um, these breaks or these little um, uh, supplements. Uh, it's like a supplement of sensory to keep a child at a table for longer, or, 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 for example. So um, let's give an example of that, which is that a school yeah. might say, um, before the child goes to... Uh, reading or whatever uh -huh. <laughs> uh, literacy lesson we're going to bring them to the gym and they're gonna bounce on the bouncy ball uh, or run around yeah and then when they get back yeah. to class they'll be better able to focus so that might be right. what you're talking about yeah so we'll give them a little booster shot of vestibular and probe and then that should keep them going for 45 minutes while we sit them at a table uh, with their peers 
um, maybe with some small minor accommodations, but it's this kind of supplement approach. And who wants to be on a diet? I don't want to be on a diet, you know. So I, I had always thought, ah, oh, the sensory diet thing doesn't, it, it, you know, the, the, the child whose need that meets is very, very close to typical range anyway. Um, and in, in, a, it's, in a sense, it's a little bit like lip service to the sensory needs of that child. So I had been talking in my own journey about a sensory buffet. Let's have a sensory buffet instead. And I want the child to have all the options that they need because this child's needs differ from day to day. And at 10 a.m. every day, they might not need to bounce on the physio ball or push a heavy trolley full of books. But if they have options and they can identify, you know what, I'm moving out of, I'm moving out of that just right place of learning and I need to nourish my sensory systems. I need to stay organized. I need to stay in that window of just right. What can I access? And, and it was a more dynamic process in my mind. And then I um, started my conversation with Dr. Miller and, you know, really got to know her, her brilliant works. And she has said it much better than me, of course. And so she talks about a sensory lifestyle, which really resonates with me. Can you uh, talk a little bit about who Dr. Miller is, uh, just uh -huh. briefly, and, and sure. her history for the listeners? Sure. So, so Dr. Lucy Miller um, trained under uh, Ginez, who is really the, the, the genius mastermind behind uh, sensory integration theory. And Dr. Ginez's work was way ahead of her times. She really was a pioneer. And um, Dr. Miller started off studying with her after she had had her own sensory stuff going on and discovered occupational therapy and committed herself to this field. And she then also did studied with uh, Dr. Greenspan and Dr. Vida, and she did psychoanalysis as well. Um, and so she developed this way of working that is very DIR, very uh, combined sensory integration and and, and um, utilizes uh, sensory integration theory with relationships and regulation as, as key. Um, and so she has this center in Colorado, which I'm now fortunate to be part of, where we have a, this interdisciplinary team um, and we really try to utilize um, this framework that she's developed, which is called the star frame of reference. She's done a lot of studies. She campaigned for a long time to get sensory processing in the DSM as a standalone disorder because some children do have sensory processing without the other aspects of perhaps an autism diagnosis or an ADHD diagnosis. And let me just say to the listeners who aren't familiar with the DSM, it's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual um, that if a child is going in for a diagnosis of of, of anything, ADHD, autism, other things, they look at this diagnostic and statistical manual to see does the child have fit this criteria for a particular diagnosis. And um, a, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, they they remade it and now it's at volume five, I think, the DSM-5, mm -hmm. so <laughs> continue. Yeah, it's, it's one manual that's used for diagnosis. Um, again, that's probably another conversation for another time. <laughs> it's not my favorite book in the world, but um, it got 
it, that was a big part of what she did was trying to campaign for recognition of that so that those children could get services it did get included in the in the latest one as a part of the autism diagnosis so it finally got recognized as that and the evidence frankly is is showing that you know probably 95 to 100 percent of children with autism have a sensory component to to what's going on so um yeah so um, her work is at spdstar.org and she's published a couple of books. She's a fascinating person to work with. Um, and she really coined the phrase sensory lifestyle. So before we get into uh, some of the details of the sensory lifestyle, can you talk a little bit about some of this research? Because it is sort of uh, common layperson knowledge among professionals that there's really no such thing as sensory integration, it's just a theory, there's no evidence for it, and uh -huh. that is no longer true. So can you tell us it's a bit about, about the stuff I mean, in, I think it was in New Jersey, you said some of the latest studies they're doing. I'm trying to think which ones I might have been referring to. I mean, at the end of the day, the, for people to say sensory integration isn't a thing, shows that's pretty archaic to say that nowadays because we with everything we know about child development we know that the sensory systems are critical to organizing a human being and they're the first systems to come online in utero so to, to and they can be disrupted and they can be disorganized so um, when people say sensory integration isn't a thing, they can't possibly be saying we don't have sensory systems. I think what they're generally trying to say is that um, one of the, the big questions that people had was, can it be a thing all of its own, where the only difficulty a child's facing is that their sensory motor development is, is uh, poorly integrated, that they have challenges in this area. Um, Alyssa Marco is maybe who I was talking about, and she has, um, I think she may be on her fourth publication specific to this top topic. She's a, her team is prolific, but where they've shown brain differences and structural differences in children who, yes, they've absolutely identified it in children on the autism spectrum in the sensory um, processing areas, but they've also identified there's a group of children who don't have this diagnosis, but do have structural differences and neurological differences in how they process um, sensory information from the different systems. You mentioned Liz Torres. Uh, oh, Liz Torres's work is, is amazing. Yeah, I, I would love and 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 I and I should try and find some of the um, resources available online that make that her work really accessible and she's Liz Torres is really showing that sensory motor and the motor piece um, behind the autism diagnosis may well be central to what's going on rather than a peripheral issue and so the fact that movement and sensory integration is so so deeply challenging that it can interfere with a baby's ability to access um, non-verbal connection with their parent, that that might be motor or sensory motor at the core, is a really important conversation that I wish was, was a bit more mainstream. So thanks for bringing that up. And so she's Elizabeth Torres, T-O-R-R-E-S. 
Um, and she's written a book called Autism, The Movement Perspective, which is quite dense, but, but that's one resource that she has available. Yeah, I'll put links to everything we're discussing on the blog at affectautism.com. Um, yeah, thank you for that, that description about uh, Jean Ayers and Lucy Miller and the, the whole background in relation to DIR and Dr. Stanley Greenspan. Um, and, you know, now just letting our listeners know that this is now based in research. A lot of these mm-hmm. pioneers were ahead of their time and the research is really uh, corroborating everything that they, mm-hmm. they studied and saw clinically. And so with the sensory lifestyle, um, I wanted to cover a few different things. So first of all, what does it look like for a child to live a sensory lifestyle and what does it involve? And then um, talking, talking a little bit about how the goal is not for parents to do everything for the child, but to mm-hmm. move towards a place where the child can recognize these things in themselves when they're developmentally ready to then provide that kind of sensory input, which you alluded to earlier, uh, for themselves. And, um, and um, well, let's start with that. <laughs> well, so we have our children who maybe are under responsive to vestibular input. And so that means that they don't really have a grounded sense of where their body is in space, which absolutely fundamentally impacts their emotional development, their ability to access relationships. So we have this individual difference that is that that you know leaves them feeling um, like astronauts walking through the world, you know, and and it and it means that so much of their neural real estate is committed to figuring out where their body is in space that they get fatigued, that they don't have resources available for the higher level um, relatedness and learning that they're actually have the potential to do, but they're spending all their resources just being walking around on the earth, right? I mean, it really is that fundamental. And so this child then needs something that's going to nourish their sensory systems in such a way that they can feel grounded. They can feel this is where my body begins and ends. I can understand the space around me. I can start to learn about spatial relationships. And that means I can start to really lay down some nice numeracy skills as well as social skills. And, you know, so many areas are impacted by this system, for example. So so to just give that child uh, the trampoline every morning and then put them on the school bus or to give them some swinging at 10 a.m. every day or put them on a board that rotates at 11 a.m. every day. If that's going to do something, but if we could help this child feel grounded and know where their body is in space so that that can become a subconscious process and free up the neural real estate so that the frontal lobe can come online, so that learning can happen, then we want to do that. And that's the aim of a sensory lifestyle. So, uh, so at first, it would be developmentally appropriate for the adults in that child's life to be figuring out what their needs are. And one of the questions you have to ask when you're doing that is, we talk a lot about what's socially appropriate. Um, so, you know, this child needs to bounce all day 
and, and someone might say, well, that's not socially appropriate. And so then one of the questions we're asking when we're doing this investigative work is what does this child need? What's organizing for them? What is truly disruptive? What is my personal preference? And how can we find the, the sensory lifestyle for this child that works best for them, but also honors everyone around them? And sometimes that means that we have to change our expectations. Right? Absolutely. So, and, right. and just to give um, a little insight into what you said, which is something that's really important, so I want to I wanna really stress it. You said that it's taking up so much uh, neurological real estate for the child to simply uh, process things that we take for granted. So mm -hmm. I've seen something online, actually, um, there's a, a girl in, a, a woman, uh, sorry, she's now a young woman in Toronto named Carly Fleischman, who is a self-advocate mm -hmm. and she has made, she's, she's amazing, <laughs> but she has made a wonderful video that gives you a sense of what it's like for her to be in a coffee shop. And it just shows you, like imagine if that, if that were you, hearing every noise, every piece of every conversation, every door shut, every time the door shuts and opens, the grinder, you know, like everything is amplified. And she's trying to filter out all this information while her father's asking her, what do you want to drink? Now, Carly is nonverbal, so she's in her head saying, I can't remember what it was. Um, I think she was asking for a latte or something and, and the dad said, okay, I'll get you a tea or, or whatever it was. He, he misinterpreted what she said and just what it's like to feel so misunderstood and not being able to communicate. Mm -hmm. um, and so someone um, also used the example of sitting in a room with flashing fluorescent lights grating on us with loud screechy noise would you be able to focus and do what you're doing? Mm. No, we couldn't. But yet mm. our children are going through, uh, you know, um, a qualitatively similar type of thing um, in their own uh, sensory profile, whatever, right. whatever it is that's impacting them. And so it's so important to, to know this because everything in our society is so focused on discipline and compliance. Right. And how can you expect a child to comply when they're dealing with this all day yeah. long, all day long. Yeah, and that, that you know they're either disorganized by the lack of data from their body, or that, or they're overwhelmed by too much data from the environment, or both, or or or, or the opposite. They're un, they're bombarded rather than able to habituate, rather than able to prioritize and 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 focus, and therefore develop a skill like attention. Um, and so what we want from a sensory lifestyle is to figure out how do we get, how do we make these processes, uh, support these processes as much as possible and bring them down to a subconscious level again so that our children can engage and learn and figure out who they are in the world and what does give them joy and what they want to contribute rather than normalizing them so that they can sit at a table when the goal of therapy or a school is to get a child who can sit in a classroom I find that very worrying but when the goal is for a child to joyfully engage with the world as an active social agent then we're talking about a sensory lifestyle and we're talking about questioning our own expectations uh, and just providing what that child needs and so some children need to bounce on a trampoline all the way through speech therapy and that's what's going to help them 
be there and be integrated and have all you know be online every area is online and then you you're figuring it out and then other children um they need a sensory backpack with noise reduction headphones not not noise not um ear protectors that, that block out all the noise but that just filter enough so that it isn't like being in a in the middle of a subway all day long um you know and then there are different types of lenses and glasses that can work for our children and some of this is trial and error and it doesn't have um reams and reams of data behind it but it um is able to you know I've had children put on a yellow lens and just sort of go, <sighs> take a deep breath. And, and just it's just brought them to this better place. And we're thinking about that window of arousal within which they can operate. And we're trying to support their sensory systems to keep them there for as long as possible. And so we're looking at all the way through the day, what options does this child need to have available? And then at first, developmentally, we're the ones saying, I think I think you're looking kind of, um, we might use the, the uh, an analogy like, you're, you're a bit like Tigger right now. I'm wondering if we can help you finish this piece of work by maybe doing this. So, you know, even when the kid's younger, we would use less words, but we would say, oh, something doesn't feel good. Maybe we should try. That's the kind of thing we're going to do. But then what we want is these children to be self-aware and able to say, I need some gum and I need it all day long. Um, and, and I'm going to listen to music while we do this piece of work. And I know exactly the music I need to keep me just right. And I can't sit on that chair. I need, to, I need to identify that I need a piece of furniture that moves all day long or that supports me better because this is too much. This chair is too hard for me and I have to concentrate so hard on sitting in the chair that I can't listen to the teacher. So we, we want children who can self-identify and self-advocate. But that's a developmental process in itself. So it's sort of thinking about all of these things. It's, it's a very dynamic process. And let's talk a little bit about, because I think we can't drive this home enough because the developmental approach is just not the norm and it should be. Um, mm -hmm. What you mean when you say it's a developmental process in itself. So mm -hmm. to me, that means, and you can and elaborate and or correct me, is that this is not something that we're just going to try and then that doesn't work, so we try something else, we try something else and then, and then it's resolved. This is something that not only takes time to figure out, but it's also something that continually changes as the child develops and as the child um, integrates more parts of, of his or her sensory system, which I, I assume kind of happens naturally as well as with, um, with um, for lack of a better term, in, intervention into doing different sensory things uh, with practice, the child, the child's system will start to integrate um, and then over time they're going to grow and then they're going to have hormones and then all of these things and are going to change. change it all yeah. again. So when yeah. you say it's a developmental pro process, um, how would you describe that? I think it's, I, I, I think it's multifaceted. Um, I'm never one for the simple answer, sorry, but um, you know, I think there's, what we're doing is we're taking a process, we're bringing a process that we take for granted 
out into more conscious thought. So, you know, when you and I were growing up, we, we were learning how to manage our own sensory systems, but it just wasn't really talked about. And I rocked on my chair. I rocked on my chair all the time and I doodled. I, ha I needed to be doing something with my hands to listen to the church sermon or the lecture or the, you know, and I, and I, um, and I chew when, I'm, when my arousal level's going down. So I would chew gum or I would chew candy. And, you know, I, I was, <laughs> right, I was learning to manage my sensory systems, but it wasn't being pointed out to me. And what I find so funny is that I struggled at school to sit still and learn. And when I went to a university, I was allowed to stand up and walk at the back of the classroom. Okay, I was doing an occupational therapy degree, but why are we expecting our little learners to sit still and uh, listen to really, really hard things, but our adult learners are allowed to walk around and listen, and we know that they're still listening to us. Um, so we have... We have, what we're doing is we're taking a subconscious process um, that we take for granted and we're bringing it out into conscious conversation and we're trying to scaffold it deliberately. Mm -hmm. um, we're also trying to question our expectations on children, even in typical development, about how they manage their sensory systems and are able to organize and pay attention to things and uh, be communicators and tolerate school bells that sound horrendous and all of those things. So we're trying to question the norm, bring something out into the open. Um, and we're also trying to foster self-understanding and self-advocacy, which really is going to come much later in some of our children. Um, and we can't expect even in typical development of children under, I would say, seven, eight or nine years old. Um, so one, so that for me is, develop, is, is thinking developmentally. It's questioning our assumptions. It's looking at something that we take for granted. And it's supporting our children to become independent in it over time. Yeah, and, and I was thinking of, of things that I did or people I know did. Like I, I still bite my nails constantly. <laughs> and that's, that's just an example of something that you need to do. Um, other people I've heard of that have to spin around in their chair a few times, you know, every so often. And, and these are not questioned yet when we need to do this for our children with challenges, all of a sudden there might be, this is another important point that you mentioned a few times that I haven't highlighted that I really want to highlight now, which is changing our expectations because every parent out there knows like I do that when you bring your child who happens to be a mover and a shaker like my little guy into a public realm and they are doing things that are considered not typical, you're gonna get the stares. And especially from family members too, like, oh, well, you better stop that because that's not gonna work. Like, excuse me, <laughs> how do you think I have control over my child needing to move constantly, needing to run, needing to um, bounce, whatever it is. So like you said, we may have this idea that I want my child to be able to do this. Well, guess what? Your child isn't able to do that. So you're going to have to reframe what your expectations are. And let's instead, this is the DIR model to its core, focus on the child. What does the mm -hmm. child need? What is the best way to support this child through their development and really attune ourselves to what the child's experience is and providing that support. So um, I will forever be 
my child's number one advocate if someone gives us a funny stare because, you know, he can't help it when he looks at things, he's excited and he's jumping up and down and flapping his arms and, and talking at a super high volume. Um, you know, I've developed all kinds of different things I can say to people like, oh, you know, auditory processing um, is why he's speaking louder or say something technical that that makes them glaze over or I'll just not I'll just ignore them and say, oh, you're so excited. Yeah, isn't that great? And sort of normalizing what he's experiencing. And they may still mm -hmm. think, oh, that child's out of control or whatever. But um, but especially when the teachers or people in the child's every day, the people they have to be with every day are having expectations that, that the child can't meet. That's where you really need to get in there and educate the people in your child's life about these are physical, real challenges my child is going through. And this mm -hmm. is not something that we can control with discipline or try and enforce and for the child to be compliant. That's just really cruel in my opinion. And sometimes when we say, oh, this child can't do that, they can, they just do it differently and, and helping them find out what that difference is. Absolutely. Um, and yeah. I don't even like saying this child can't do that because if my mm -hmm. child's hearing every day, I can't do this, he can't do that, mm -hmm. he can't, what's mm -hmm. that going to do to his self-image? Like, oh, I'm, I'm some kind of letdown to other people, which, um, you know, you, you want to always empower your child and, oh, I know that you can do this. Let's find a way so that, um, or, or, well, I don't even like to do that. I know you can do this because if he's not ready to yet, I don't want him to feel like he's letting me down. Um, mm. Kids really do want to uh, please their parents when they're young and impressionable because that's your main caregiver. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about details in terms of the sensory lifestyle. So you could make up a fictional child in your head or whatever, what, take us through a typical day in a child who has a sensory lifestyle. Um, I think one of the biggest game changers for me has been children who need to move and their parents are trying to support their sensory lifestyle and especially working, living in, in Hong Kong where, where people had small tiny apartments, the parent who could install the swing at home um, for their child, I, I rarely, that rarely missed the mark. That, that was such a, that would always be such a big piece for these children because they could get in and out of that swing as they needed throughout the day, um, as long as obviously they were at home and having then like bed sheets on the bed so that as they slept, they felt where their body was in space, their sleep was improved. They might have, something like the dream pad to give them um, organizing classical music through bone conduction as they slept. And so even sleep is considered in the sensory lifestyle. The way that the, the parent dries the child with the towel at the end of the bath is through firm touch in a particular way that's very organizing with a soothing voice. And so every minute of every day is nourishing for the sensory systems. Um, having a sensory backpack with um, glasses that a child might need inside it, uh, a toolkit, you know, maybe something that the child can chew. There's a ruler that you can chew and flick and touch and play with. Um, there, there are things you can put on the end of your pencil. There's jewelry that you can chew. Um, you can have 
furniture that provides real movement. Um, and if you can't have that, then one of those move and sit cushions, it, it, that, they'll give you a little bit, you know? Um, standing desks at school, having options for where to do work um, rather than the same table and the same circle and all of those things. Um, monkey bars at school, being able to access the monkey bars, they're, they're brilliant. They're, they're, if, if a child is able to use monkey bars, often that's a very organizing and nourishing because it hits a few sensory systems at once. So there's lots, you know, you can have clothing that's supportive rather than disorganizing. You can use snug vests that provide pressure if that works for your child. Um, so it's, it's this way of thinking about the day rather than thinking about keeping the child at the table and supplementing their day. It's thinking about keeping them online, organized, feeling good, feeling grounded. And I just feel like that feeds into everything. Um, and, and specifically this, this piece that I think is so important of them being able to figure out who they are in the world. And if they're disrupted, by their sensory systems all the time. Then they never get to that place where they can figure out, this is me, this is what I believe, this is my internal, this is my, my internal moral compass, you know? Um, I, I, and all of those pieces, they don't, they, they don't get to get there. But when we have every minute of every day supporting them through, through these different techniques that hopefully an occupational therapist would help you identify for your child, and your child will certainly let you know what works and what doesn't, um, then, then we're setting them up for much more success. So um, what does a parent of a child who's still developmentally younger and not really able to say, yes, this feels good, or no, this mm -hmm. doesn't, or I'm feeling dysregulated, what do I mm -hmm. do? Do we just sort of go in periodically and and bring the child over to a lycra swing, for instance, and get them in there and spin them around or push them and see what they like, and then maybe later give them a deep deep massage or even um, I know Maud Larue likes to say give deep pressure massage right when they wake up and before they go to bed can sometimes right. be the best thing a busy parent right. can do who doesn't have time to think about other things. I think, um, so the first thing I would say is with the child who's not yet speaking or who's not going to speak. Um, or, or even a child like my son who's very verbal, but he's not yet um, able to say what he wants or what he needs. He never right. tells us when he's hungry, for instance, even though right. we'll know he's starving. Okay. So then, um, well, the first, the first place I would start is um, working on the all the caregivers in that child's life ability to read all the other ways that that child's communicating and so facial expressions tone of voice body movements gestures um and micro expressions expressions that are only there for a split second they're all rich in communicative information and they you know there's often intent behind those pieces, but we miss them because we're looking for words, and words are only 7% of communication. So if we're trying to figure out what's working for our child, the first thing we need to do is make sure that we're able to identify that this child's experience is different from my own, and I want to become an expert in how they communicate. 
And so the sounds, the looks, the eye contact, the lack of eye contact, the turning of the body, whatever it is for that child, become an expert in their communicative signals so that you don't miss a beat because they're probably telling you a lot more than, than typically we would pick up on. Yeah, and certainly behavior as well. Um, when our son starts right. to get cranky and starts throwing things and knocking things over and just becoming what, you know, stereotypical uh, teachers in a school would say, oh, a behavior problem. That's when we know our child is really getting hungry or really yeah. getting tired. Yeah. Yeah. So asking the why, looking for the communication behind the behavior. And then uh, we don't impose sensory experiences on our children. So you know, being able to recognize again that this is an individual separate from me and just because I like swinging, he might not like swinging. It might not be the most calming thing for him. And so I'm not gonna make him get on the swing. I'm gonna enable him to organize his body so that he can access the swing if he wants to. But the second he tells me that this isn't right for him right now, I'm gonna honor and respect that. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, um, so considering consent as part of the process when you're establishing a sensory lifestyle is paramount and giving a child a, ch a way of saying no and then honoring that no is 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 critical because otherwise we're just going to be imposing things that that are not going to be scaffolding that development but are rather going to be contributing to the disruption so, so we make things as accessible as possible. If you can access an occupational therapist who's trained in sensory integration, DIR, and the, the STAR process, perfect. You know, hopefully they should really be able to help you be that detective and figure out what works. Um, otherwise, then I would, you know, probably through your blog, encourage people to try and find other resources and support groups and so on that are gonna really help you be this kind of detective that establishes what's gonna work and what's not gonna work. Deep pressure massage generally is a really good organizing place to start and it's very relational. So that would be a nice, powerful thing to try, but just remembering to check in with the child. What are they really telling you about how they feel? about this experience and how it makes them feel, sorry. Absolutely, and are you aware offhand of any books or resources that parents can access with sort of, um, like you said, the buffet, the list that they can then go through. I'm gonna try this, I'm gonna try this, I'm gonna try this, I'm gonna try this, and then they can start to find out what works for their child because you know there there's so many different things there's the bouncy ball there's the bouncy ball chair that is a bouncy ball yeah. inside a stable base so that it doesn't move but they get to yeah. bounce there's swings that are hard swings there's lycra swings there's this and that and then there's the like you mentioned the the deep pressure vests and um so many different things and so many different opinions about all of the things yes <laughs> i mean there's the Sensational Kids book by Dr. Lucy Miller, and then there's her other book, A Secret, which the concept behind that is that it shouldn't be a secret. <laughs> so um, that's supporting uh, sort of sensory problem solving, and that's a lovely tool to work through, ideally, again, with an occupational therapist, but it's, you know, identifying an area that needs to support that needs support and, and how to, to implement that support. Um, uh, Carol Stockranovitz's books have have lists and lists of ideas, um, so they can be very helpful too. 
Um, yeah, so there's a few different books. I can maybe email you some more ideas afterwards. Sure. Yeah, I'll list um, them on the blog post with this podcast. And I think Facebook, if you're on Facebook, uh, you know, you can turn Facebook into a uh, repository of sensory ideas by following different pages and adjoining different groups. It doesn't have to be, um, it doesn't have to be, you know, your friend's latest bikini photo or um, workout statistics. You can modify Facebook to become this exact support so that your feed is giving you ideas every day on, oh, you know, I haven't thought of this. I haven't tried that. Yes, I'm on the right track and those sorts of things. One of these days, I'm going to actually learn how to use Facebook. Right now, I just <laughs> post my blog each week and that's about all I know and how to do. do. <laughs> I, I've turned it into, um, a, I basically just follow lots of people that share the latest research. So it's, it's, my, it's a lazy man's version of uh, of getting a, a journal on, on, on the areas I'm interested in. Right. Um, well, uh, I just can't thank you enough for taking the time to be with us and let our listeners know more about this sensory lifestyle. Certainly it was an introduction and hopefully if people are interested, they will pursue finding a sensory integration uh, occupational therapist, preferably one trained in the DIR model um, mm -hmm. to work with with the um, all of the different capacities that we talk about in floor time, the, the regulation, the engagement, shared attention, attuning to your child, all of these things, and, um, and sensory lifestyle. So we want to aim towards providing our children with the breaks that they need and, and helping support them to the point where they can let us know what they need and have access to that throughout the day. And um, thank you so much, Virginia. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. And for more information, uh, look at the blog post that's with today's podcast at affectautism.com. You can search the name uh, Virginia and it should pop up right away. And until next week, here's to affecting autism.